When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everyone, I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Nicola Kornick about her latest novel, The Winter Garden. I first encountered Nicola Kornick's books with The Last Daughter of York, which I loved. What I like most about both novels is that the present day stories are every bit as compelling as the historical ones, and the two halves ultimately intersect in creative and satisfying ways. The Winter Garden opens with a day that will prove eventful in terms of both past and present. Catherine, Nightstone Manor, Winter, 1598 They awoke that morning to snow. The garden was cloaked in it. It fell in huge flakes the size of rose petals from a sky as soft and white as down. Catherine, who had mourned the loss of the summer shapes and colors, who had disliked the bare bones of the garden in winter, was enchanted. Here was her creation transformed into something magical and new. The children were desperate to play outside. The nurses wrapped them in winter flannels and thick woolens. It was astonishing that they could move, let alone run. Robert went with them as they shrieked and tumbled in the snow of the labyrinth, their excited cries echoing in the crisp winter air. Everywhere she walked, the garden beckoned her on. The clipped hedges of the knot garden were stiff with tiny spikes of frost, bristling on each twig. The pebbles of the path glittered with ice. The lake was lost beneath a covering of snow like a flat, blank mirror. The summer house, a winter house now, had icicles hanging from the eaves. She wandered along the bank, wondering whether, when the snow had cleared, there might still be ice for skating. The boys would love that. She was sure there was an old pair of wooden skates in a chest somewhere. Robert would know. The house had been his grandmother's before his. And now, please join me in welcoming Nicola Kornick. Hello, and thank you so much for inviting me to chat with you. I'm looking forward to it too. 
You have written five previous novels, which you describe on your website as books about big old Gothic houses and characters who have been lost or neglected in history. What can you tell us briefly about these previous books? Um, well, I, I started to write dual-time books because um, it, it all began, really, um, about seven years ago when I became fascinated um, by the story of Elizabeth of Bohemia, who was known as the Winter Queen. Um, and she was the daughter of King James I and the sixth of England and Scotland and the sister of King Charles I. Um, but... I, you hardly hear anything about her. It, she felt like somebody who had kind of disappeared from the pages of history. Um, and this really kind of was what started me off thinking about uh, women from the footnotes, as I call them, uh, historical figures who are mostly female, but they are occasionally male, um, who seem to have been overlooked or forgotten. So um, I went off on a kind of voyage of discovery about Elizabeth and discovered that... Um, she, she was an extraordinary woman. Um, you know, she, she was born around, well, right at the end of the, of, um, of the 1500s uh, and lived through a lot of the next century, the 17th century. Um, and, of course, this was a time of massive upheaval. Her brother Charles I was involved in the English Civil War and uh, lost, lost his throne and his head. She was also living in exile during this time, and she was running a, a court that was a centre of... Uh, both culture and diplomacy. So she was a hugely influential woman. Um, and yet, as I say, she was almost completely forgotten or dismissed in British history. So my first dual time book was called House of Shadows. And that was really based on her story because I wanted to bring her out into the light, if you like, and, and uh, remind people that this, this woman existed in the 17th century. She played an enormously important role in, in politics and all kinds of uh, diplomacy and things that were going on in Europe at the time. And yet, you know, we never hear about her. So that was my first, um, my first novel. Um, and uh, once I'd finished that, I thought, well, I really like this idea of exploring the, the stories of, of, of those historical characters who've been overlooked or forgotten. So who should I write about next? Um, and I went on to um, a book that was called The Phantom Tree um, and looked at Mary Seymour, who was the daughter of Queen Catherine Parr and Thomas Seymour. So I moved back a little bit into the Tudor period here. Um, and ever since I'd been a child uh, reading uh, historical fiction, I'd been curious about Mary Seymour because you know, she was the daughter of a queen. She was the niece of, of Jane Seymour. And yet she disappeared from the historical record. So that really, that, that was my second book. Um, and then I moved on to um, The Woman in the Lake, which is less well known than the first two. But that was actually about the first Lady Diana Spencer, who was an ancestress of the late Princess Diana. Um, so in each case, I kind of researched the stories of these characters um, and tried to uncover something new bring them out into the light, tell the story of somebody who, who perhaps um, hasn't had a prominent role before or, or who people might not have heard about, and, and just try and give it a, a, a different perspective. And what's the attraction of uh, combining a historical and a modern setting that are linked um, often in some slightly paranormal means? Uh, I think it's really interesting, actually. Um, I suppose, first of all, I enjoy examining real historical mysteries. So I am writing about things that actually happened. 
but I do enjoy doing that through the lens of the current day because I think it brings a different perspective to a historical story. If you've got a historical and a modern setting, if you've got a historical mystery solved in the present, for example, you have a modern person who is reacting very differently to the historical context. And there's almost a shock element about that, the contrast of the uh, the secure comfort of the present with the dangers of the past. So a dual timeline can also kind of enhance the history, I think, by making it more personal and uh, relatable to a modern reader. So I, I really enjoy that kind of approach of looking at um, his, history through through a modern lens. Um, as for the supernatural element, well, I think it's interesting because I didn't originally set out to do that, but it just crept in somehow. Um, I've always been a fan of books with a paranormal twist to them. I love the writing of authors like Barbara Erskine and Susanna Kersley, for example. Um, so I, I, I really, I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of interesting. It just felt right to have some kind of paranormal and it's all it's always a, it's a it's a kind of a light paranormal it's nothing it's nothing too heavy so there could be ghosts or there could be uh psych, psych, psychometry for example was one of the things in in, in um, the last but one book that i wrote uh, the ability to to touch an object and to to be able to read memories from its past or from the past of the owners uh, and, and I just find things like that completely fascinating I'm very open to, um, to to the paranormal in the sense of believing that you know there must be many things um, that we in the world that we simply can't explain through through science um, so I'm, I'm very open to these ideas and I, I kind of really enjoy exploring those alongside the historical story I'd like to take this chance to commend you because uh, one of the issues I have with dual time novels is that often the modern story doesn't really hold up because the historical story has been picked for its dramatic impact, right? But your novels are an exception to that. I was particularly struck with this in The Last Order of York, which was the first one that I read. Um, and it's true in this current one, too. You you do a wonderful job of giving your modern-day heroine a problem that is interesting enough that she catches, at least in my case, she caught my attention and really made me want to hear and find out what she what would happen to her as well as what was going to happen in the past. Oh, well, thank you very much. Because, yes, I mean, as a reader of dual time novels, I, I've, I've also had that experience when I've been reading the books. And it is really important to me not only to, as you say, give that heroine, that character, uh, something really important in their life that they're dealing with alongside um, this sort of investigation into the historical mystery, but also for those two things to be connected. So it's really important that whatever it is that the um, the modern heroine is is going through has got that connection to the historical mystery that, that, that so that the two things develop in parallel uh, so I do try really hard with that so it's lovely to know that, uh, that that you feel that both stories are equally engaging that's a terrific compliment thank you you're most welcome what drew you to the story of the gunpowder plot of 1605 um well what usually draws me to any story idea is, is threefold I think um Firstly, as I say, there's got to be a real-life historical mystery. So, of course, in, um, well, I'll come to that in a second. Um, secondly, 
um, there's, there's usually a house or some kind of historical site that inspires me. Uh, either I've visited a place and, and I think, oh, this would, um, you know, make a, a, a great setting for a book and I could go away and find out about the history. Uh, or, or I come up with the, the mystery first. But these elements are all usually in there. And, of course, thirdly, there's the character from the footnotes of history. Um, and the gunpowder plot was a perfect example of how all these Three things came together for me. Um, I had always been intrigued to, to know or to wonder, since we can't know for sure, um, who it was who wrote the anonymous letter that betrayed the gunpowder plotters to the authorities. So that was actually my starting point. That was the historical mystery that drew me in. Um, and then I started researching the book and I discovered that Robert Catesby, the ringleader of the gunpowder plot, had lived at Chasselton House with his wife and his children. And the Chasselton estate is quite close to where I live. It's local to me. Um, and I had never heard anything about this bit of Robert Catesby's life. Um, in all the books I'd read about the gunpowder plot, it was never mentioned at all. And I thought, well, that's curious, because that must have been an influential part of his life that you don't really hear much about. So, um, and again, I... I of course, that also led me on to, to read about his wife, Catherine, and about his children. Um, and I thought, again, the, the kind of the feminine background, if you like, the, the network of women around the gunpowder plotters. Um, there were a lot of them whose lives were bound up with the story of the plot. And yet, whenever you read about it or hear about it, it always feels like such a masculine affair. You know, all the plotters were men and it's all about Guy Fawkes normally. Um, so all of this, these, these women and, and the role that they played has, has kind of got a bit lost in, in, the, in the story of the plot. So those are the three things that really came together for this particular book and, and, um, and attracted me to writing about the gunpowder plot. We meet Catherine Catesby in the prologue, uh, the opening paragraphs of which I just read. Uh, where is Nightstone Manor and what does it mean to Catherine emotionally? Nightstone Manor is actually a fictitious place. Um, what happened was that the book was meant to be set actually at Chapleton House itself. But because I was writing it during the pandemic and we were all locked down, I was unable to go there to research it and it felt wrong I couldn't write it not being it, it was frustrating because it was only a few miles away but I just wasn't allowed to go there so what I did was um, create and I think I do put this in the um, in, in the note just to, to to be true to historical accuracy I created an imaginary village in a manor house which was actually based on my own village since this was the only place that I could walk I was allowed to walk around and, and kind of be inspired by so in the story, the village of Nightstone is based on my own uh, my own local village where I live, and Nightstone Manor is, um, is is the manor house of that particular village. In the story, it's the place where Catherine Catesby feels happiest. It's kind of the heart of of the story uh, for her. She's um, she's creating a special garden there, and it, it, that's kind of reminiscent of the fact that. Uh, represents the fact that this is a secure and happy place for her, a home for her and for Robert and for their two boys. So it's incredibly special and important to her. And as a result of that, she has a very strong emotional bond which ties her to Nightstone. Um, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that bond is so strong that it lasts even after her death. 
From the prologue, we move to the contemporary story, which is focused on Lucy Brown. Uh, she is not in a happy place in her life at this moment in time. So tell us who she is and what brings her to Gunpowder Cottage. Lucy is the um, yeah the the heroine of the of the contemporary strand of the story, and again she's a character very close to my own heart. I think that's quite a lot of me and Lucy. Um, she's a musician who's had a severe illness and. As a result of that, she has had to give up her career as a violinist. Um, and, of course, this is incredibly difficult for her. She's grieving for the loss of her future um, and the, the purpose in life that she thought she had. And she's trying to find something different to do. But at the same time, she's kind of reacting against that because she hasn't accepted yet that everything has changed. And change, as we all know, is really hard to deal with. Um, so her sister, her, her sister has suggested she needs to rest and give herself a bit of a break and relax over the summer. Um, but to start with, Lucy really doesn't want to be at Gunpowder Cottage at all. I mean, she knows it's lovely. She spent her childhood there, um, but she's very resistant to being there now, simply because she'd far rather be back in her old life doing all of those things. And of course, that way of life is completely closed to her. So she's at a very difficult point. Um, in in her life uh, as the story begins. Almost as soon as she arrives, she runs into Finn McIntyre and his Labrador retriever, Jeffrey, who is absolutely <laughs> adorable, <laughs> as dogs are in books especially. Uh, what's he doing at Gunpowder Cottage? And I mean Finn by then, <laughs> rather than Jeffrey. Right. Yes, and Jeffrey, of course. Uh, yes, so Finn is the... Um, yeah, Finn is... Um, uh, he's a garden historian, uh, and he's been um, invited by uh, by Lucy's aunt Verity to go to Gunpowder Cottage to explore this idea that Verity has. That there are rumours that there's a lost Tudor garden at Gunpowder Cottage, um, and so Verity has asked Finn to go and do some initial work there, some archaeology, um, to see if there's some truth in this uh, in this story, um, and uh, and if so, to kind of try and work out where the garden was and maybe uh, recreate it. But Lucy isn't actually expecting Finn to be there. So when she arrives, she's a bit taken aback to find that he's actually in the cottage. Um, and uh, and so it, they they don't exactly get off on the on the right foot. Um, of course, um, she does. Obviously, uh, she can't resist Jeffrey, who who is the 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 black Labrador in the story. Who is uh, I think I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you thought he was lovely. Um, I, I always almost always end up putting a Labrador in, in my books, or at least a, a dog, definitely a dog of some sort. I think they're they're just wonderful characters in themselves. And Jeffrey is particularly special. He's actually based on the first Labrador that I had as a pet, who was called Monty. Um, and like Jeffrey in the story, Monty um, did appear to be quite susceptible to the supernatural and to atmosphere. So, uh, so yes, Jeffrey's a bit of a of a homage to to, to Monty and, uh, and and absolutely adorable. So, uh, thanks to this run-in with Finn, uh, Lucy ends up staying at Gunpowder Barn instead of at the cottage. Uh, there she has what will be the first of several strange experiences. We're still very early in the book, so tell us a bit about that. Um, yes, well, I mean, Lucy, yeah, Lucy was was intending to, to be staying in the... Um, in the cottage and and because Finn's already living there she goes off to Gunpowder Barn which is a converted 
an old converted property that's that's just down down the hill. Um, so almost immediately from the very beginning, um, Lucy starts to have strange dreams um, about a woman called Catherine, um, almost as though she is possessing Catherine's body in the dream, or maybe Catherine is possessing her. It's a very strange and disconcerting sort of experience for her. And she also sees Catherine's ghost and starts to feel this really strong connection to her, a, a, a real a real link between the two of them, um, which at, at the beginning she doesn't really understand. Um, all she knows is that Catherine is, uh, is, is haunting her, really. Um, and of course, there is this really strong bond between the two of them. Um, both of them have lost something incredibly important to them. Um, in Lucy's case, of course, it's her career. Um, and I won't say that much about Catherine's loss because I think that would be spoilers for the story but they have a, a shared sense of grief and that's what brings them together and then of course Lucy eventually realizes that she is the only person who can help Catherine find peace. At this point of the novel we jump back to Northamptonshire in 1592. The narrator is no longer Catherine Caseby but her future mother-in-law Anne. So tell us about Anne and why she makes the ideal protagonist for the historical portion of your tale. I yes, Anne Catesby. Um, I I actually intended to write the historical section from Catherine Catesby's point of view when I started, um, but I hadn't got very far into the book before I realised I was. Uh, far more drawn to her mother as a character and identified far more closely with Anne Catesby. I think I, I guess it's probably an age thing, given that I'm closer in age myself to, to the mother's character than to, than to the, uh, the the 20-something heroine. Um, so, yes, I identified really strongly with that. And as I was researching her and, and reading about her, she made a profound impression on me, actually, as, as a person. She's... Um, She's a presence, really, all the way through this. Well, obviously, she's a presence for all the way through the story of Robert Catesby's life. She actually outlived her son. She was also um, very influential on him. Not, it's a difficult relationship. I mean, Anne, you get a real feel for Anne when you, you read about her. Of course, there isn't anything, there's no biography, there's nothing directly about her, but you can get a sense of her um, from letters and from reading about her part in in the bigger story and other people's um, perception of her so she came across as somebody with a uh, a very strong personality and actually I think there was a bit of an irony here because she and Robert were quite similar in some ways and I think that was maybe the cause of some of the friction between them they were both very stubborn they did disagree with each other frequently certainly after Catherine had died and Robert um, moved back for a little while to live in uh, the house in his in his parents' house, um, but evidently he and his mother couldn't coexist comfortably under the same roof, so he moved out again. And you get this feeling, sort of throughout their relationship, that there's this disagreements going on, which don't undermine um, the love that they have for each other. And, and again, that's incredibly touching because at, at the end of the story, when Robert is on the run and he's going to be um, arrested for his part for leading the gunpowder plot. He deliberately doesn't go to, he goes to see his mother, but he refuses to speak to her or get too close because he doesn't want to implicate her. And, and 
she understands that, he understands that, and it feels as though, despite these problems between the two of them, that she was always, all she ever wanted to do was protect him and, and to look out for him. And I think, you know, she was afraid for him. He was, he was a headstrong sort of person. I think she was afraid bad things would happen, and of course, unfortunately, she was proved right. Yes, I can see why, as a novelist, she would be the much better protagonist. Catherine is very sweet, which is lovely. She's exactly the kind of person you want to know. But um, I can't imagine her telling this story or even being aware of of Robert's faults, for example. So why does Anne feel that marriage will steady her son? Robert had a, a bad reputation and I mean he had a bad reputation quite young because he was actually only 20 when he got married but prior to that he was known to have been very wild and a lot of that is just being a young man particularly from a, a, a privileged background he was a when he was a student at, at Oxford University he'd been involved in some of the fighting between the students and the townspeople that erupted every so often. You know, there would be rioting in the streets and the students would run amok, turning over market stores and doing damage and this kind of thing and thinking it was all just a bit of a laugh. Um, And Robert had been involved in that. There were also uh, records that he was a bit of a gambler. He was a very extravagant man. He didn't seem to be able to understand the value of money or to hang on to his money particularly well he also liked women and he liked drinking so in in some ways he was a typical young man of his age and his class really but you do get the the, the strong feeling that both sir william catesby and Anne catesby uh, lady catesby felt that there needed to be some kind of steadying influence in robert's life and whilst Sir William himself was a steadying influence on Robert. I think they were keen for, for him to settle down, if you like, um, and thought that the love of a good woman might be just what he needed. One of the uh, themes in this novel, which I found particularly interesting, is religion, because we tend to think, and most of you know, we learn in school even, that uh, Elizabeth I was a tolerant ruler, uh, the religious problems that have been going on ever since Henry VIII decided to take England away from the Catholic Church were supposedly solved under Elizabeth's reign. But in fact, life for Catholics in England in 1592 is quite a, a, not quite what we would have expected from that cliché. No, I don't think so at all. Of course, at this stage, we are towards the very end of Elizabeth I's reign. So by this point, she was obviously from the start a strong supporter of the Protestant faith. But I think that by the time we get to the end of her reign, there have been numerous plots against her, um, attempts to place her Catholic cousin Mary, Queen of Scots, on the throne. There's been the threat of the Armada. So, of course, any religious tolerance that was around to start with put up, been put under extreme strain at this point. And not just Elizabeth, but certainly the the, the um, courtiers, the people working for her, were very, also now starting to get concerned about the um, the succession, um, not not wanting to have Catholic succession. So there was a lot of pressure um, to to keep the Catholic the people who supported the Catholic religion repressed and under control. So people such as the Catesbys, who were quite open about their Catholic faith, they were known as recusants in this period. 
And it was actually Robert Catesby's father, Sir William, who um, who was who was so open about his Catholic faith that he kind of brought about problems that the Catesby family experienced. Because up until that point, the Catesbys had managed to recover. They'd had a, a down a down moment when. Um, when the family had been on the wrong side at the Battle of Bosworth and because uh, a previous Catesby had been a, a supporter of Richard III, they'd come back up again during the Tudor period. They, they were doing quite well. They were making plenty of money um, and they were holding public office. But then when Sir William was open about um, worshipping uh, freely his, with his Catholicism, of course, and became a reticent. They were fined heavily, not attending church services. Um, they were occasionally imprisoned for their religious beliefs. So this was a very repressive regime at this point. It was illegal not to attend the Protestant church. Um, and of course, that in turn uh, engendered an even stronger attachment to the religion. So it, it didn't solve the problem. And then, of course, when Elizabeth died and James I inherited, he did promise again, he promised religious toleration at the start of his reign, as people tended to do. Um, but it became apparent that he didn't have any intention of granting it either. So there'd been a kind of breathing space where the Catholics had thought, you know, things might be easier now. And then they realised that it wasn't going to change. And I think they became even more disillusioned at that point. So it was a very difficult time uh, and, and as you say religion has, has played a really really significant and strong role in political and private life at this point and it affects uh, the plans for robert's marriage as well i mean the um both the fact that the family income has been depleted and the fact that they are so strongly catholic are both considered factors, right? It's a really interesting match, actually, when Robert Catesby and, and Catherine Lee get together, because I'm surprised, I am surprised that that marriage happened, because on the face of it, it feels quite unlikely. Catherine is a beautiful heiress. She's a real catch. Um, she's also from a staunchly Protestant family. And as you say, Robert's family were much poorer, Um They'd lost, they'd lost what money they did have through all these incredibly heavy fines. I mean, they were paying thousands and thousands of pounds, fines which amounted to over a million pounds in some cases um, for recusancy. Um, so he was, he, he was really, you know, kind of, he was really, it was a surprise, I think. I mean, in his favour, um, everybody says, that he was, and of course he had that reputation for being wild as well, but in his favour it was said that he was extremely handsome um, and very charismatic and, and had a, a very loyal and generous nature. Um, and so this is one of the um, ideas that suggests that perhaps Robert and Catherine actually fell in love with each other, that it was a love match um, and that they were influential in persuading the parents that, that actually, yes, this was a good thing to do. Um, there's no doubt, though, that the biggest stumbling block was this, uh, the fact that Robert was a Catholic um, and that in the political atmosphere of the times, this was uh, very dangerous. Um, so, yes, although the Lee and the Catesby families were neighbours and they were both sprung from a similar level of society, they were both country gentry, uh, I am surprised that the Lees felt that there were many advantages uh, in in uh, giving their their beautiful heiress daughter in uh, in wedlock to to a Catesby. 
And does the parents' plan work? Does it steady, Robert? This is the part of um, Robert Catesby's story that really um, I find the most interesting because I don't think it was a foregone conclusion that, that from the very beginning that he was going to become a religious fanatic and plot against King James because the evidence does suggest that Robert was studied by his marriage to Catherine um, and that he was very happy and settled during this part of his life. He was, in fact, devoted to her and they had two sons. He, uh, you know, he seemed entirely um, happy and settled as a country gentleman living this, this life at Chapleton House with Catherine and the two boys. Um, and most significantly, um, as, as, as far as I'm concerned, he even became what was known as a church papist, which was somebody who was known to be sympathetic to the Catholic faith, but who was prepared to attend the Protestant church for the sake of their personal advancement and also obviously to keep on the right side of the authorities. So if that had continued in, in Robert's life, um, I think, you know, I, I could quite easily envisage him as being, you know, a very steady sort of country gentleman. He would probably have held a few officers, uh, JP, sheriff, that kind of thing in the in, in the county um, and been very, very happy. But of course, unfortunately, um, it just didn't work out like that. You know, um, Catherine, well, first of all, his father died. And then his elder son died, and then Catherine died, all within the space of a year. Um, and I think that was what sort of pushed him back towards his um, his his Catholic faith, except in a more extreme way. I mean, some historians have suggested that that um, Robert's marriage to a Protestant was actually just a cover, really, to hide his illegal activities all the time. But I think the interesting thing about that is that there is no evidence of this. He turns back, He turns from being this rather wild um, uh, young man in, into a family man. But then, of course, um, unfortunately, he loses all of that stability. And I think that that's the tragedy of Robert Catesby's life, actually, that it could all have been very different. Tell us a bit about Nightstone Manor and the renovations that Catherine makes to it, especially the gardens. In the story, Catherine's planning a beautiful uh, garden at Nightstone that really intended to reflect the happiness she feels there in the heart of her family. So I think that that for her, that's, it, it, it's kind of a, a physical expression of how happy she is there. Um, and she wants to create something beautiful. She's quite a sort of creative and artistic person and so she's making this this manor her home and and um, and a special place um and i i really loved this idea i, I first actually first got interested in tudor garden design um when i went to kenilworth castle um because they had recreated the garden that was there for the visit of queen elizabeth the first in 1575 and it's it's amazing. It's absolutely stunning. I kind of, you know, full of these lovely knot gardens, little patterns in the gardens, and there's fountains and statues, and even an aviary. It's remarkable, really. Um, but for the purposes of this story, um, I was more drawn to a place called Lipton New Beald, which is in Rutland. It's, um, it's still there. It's, uh, it's run by the National Trust now. Um, but that was a house that belonged to Sir Thomas Tresham, who, of course, also comes into the story of the Winter Garden. But the garden that Thomas Tresham created um, at Lisbon has, again, it's been restored. It was lost. 
Um, and again, it's such a romantic story in real life. It was kind of overgrown and people didn't know it was there. But when they started to look underneath the surface, they discovered this amazing Tudor garden. Um, so they've restored that. And that was the model for the, for the one that I have Catherine creating at Nightstone. Um, so there's terraces and little round hills that you can climb up to view the estate um, and a canal to sail on. And, and it's all just absolutely blissful. And of course, at the centre of it all is, is a labyrinth, which again feels sort of very symbolic uh, at, at the centre of the heart of the book and the heart of the story. Um, so I find Lisbon completely magical and I wanted Catherine's Garden at Nightstone to feel like that. And the labyrinth brings us to the Knights Hospitaller. Um, tell us a bit about who they were and what connects them to Knightstone Manor. The Knights Hospitaller, again, was another kind of fortuitous when I was researching the, um, the, the background of the book. It kind of was another fortuitous discovery, really, that intrigued me. So they, they were... Um, Otherwise, the Knights Hospital are also known as the Order of the Knights of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem. They originated um, as a medieval Catholic military order to provide care for um, sick uh, or, or injured or poor pilgrims to the Holy Land. Um, and they were a, a military order very similar but different to the Knights Templar, who, of course, people have heard a lot more about them and they've got a bit of a sort of a a mysterious aura about them as well. Um, but by the time we get to the 16th century, the, the Order of the Knights Hospitaller had, of course, been dissolved by Henry VIII. You know, we were talking earlier about the great religious upheavals during Henry VIII's reign. So part of the, his dissolution of the monasteries, he took all of the land and the wealth of the Knights Hospitaller as well. Then... <laughs> Um, it was all reversed when, his, when Henry's daughter, the Catholic Queen Mary, came in. So she re-established the order. But, of course, it had barely even had time to get going again before Mary died and Elizabeth um, took the throne and she dissolved the order of the, the Knights Hospital for good. But the, the, the crucial link for me and the, the sort of intriguing bit about it was that during Mary's reign in the last throes of, of the Knights Hospital, uh, in England, it was actually Sir Thomas Tresham's grandfather, who's also who was also known as Thomas Tresham, who was Grand Prior of the Order under Mary, and so that was what that was the connection that led me to introduce the knights as an element in the story as well. Good. I'm glad you got back to Thomas Tresham because I'd like to find out more about him. He is a character in the story, but he's also was a real person, as you mentioned, and he's quite fascinating just in his own self. Uh, what role does he play in your book? It, well, in the book, um, Thomas Tresham, as you say, he's a, he was a real person. Um, he was Anne Catesby's brother-in-law. He was married to his sister, Muriel, uh, and he was also Robert Catesby's godfather. So he was somebody who was very well known to the Catesby family and spent a lot of time with them. And he has got a, a really important role in the book, an influential role as Robert's godfather. Um, and I do present him as a very strong influence on, on Robert's life in, in the story. I think as I'm writing from Anne, um, Anne Catesby's point of view, she's not, uh, she's not that keen on the influence that Thomas has uh, on Robert because, of course, at this point in, in Robert's life, um, his parents are sending him off down this path where he's marrying a Protestant heiress, he's going to be a, a church papist, he's going to 
rise high in the county and, and, and have, have office and, and make lots of money and be safe. But Thomas, of course, um, is, is, is pulling him in a, in a contrary direction. I mean, Sir Thomas Tresham was a fascinating man, I think. He was um, the acknowledged leader of what was known as the Catholic Gentleman's Network um, in Elizabethan England. It was a kind of, that was a kind of unofficial title, but that was what it was known as. So he was the recognised leader of a, of, a, of, a, of a party of, of, of Catholics who were quite strong and influential. Also, of course, still always getting into trouble, being fined, sometimes imprisoned. The interesting thing about Sir Thomas, though, was that he was a very intellectual man, um, very, very firm in his faith. He corresponded with, with the highest of, of Queen Elizabeth's courtiers and, and, um, and civil servants. Um, he, uh, so he was very well known in, in society. Uh, and his claim was that his only aim was to restore freedom of worship in England, but he would never resort to violence to do that. He wanted to do it through, um, through debate, and he wanted people just to have he wanted to have religious tolerance, um, which is all fine and good on the surface. But actually, there is no doubt that he was also active in various plots, um, certainly in conspiring with Philip of Spain to invade and so on. So Thomas is a big character in the sense he's got a big personality. And I think he has this crucial influence um, in the, within the Catesby family, um, but also, of course, in the much wider network of all the families, because all the families who were involved in the gunpowder plot were connected to each other, either by, mostly by marriage, um, but also everybody knew each other. So it was a very tight network, and Sir Thomas is right at the middle of that. What would you like people to take away from the Winter Garden? Well, I hope people will find this a, a gripping and enjoyable story in itself. Um, for a start, I, I, that, that's what I always hope people will, will find from my stories. I do like it when somebody uh, reads one of my books and finds the history so interesting that they want to know more about it. Um, but most of all, I think I hope the Winter Garden will just give readers a different perspective on what is a quite well-known historical mystery um, and a, a, an insight into the stories of um, people like Anne and, and Catherine Catesby, who are kind of behind the better known um, players in, in, in the gunpowder plot. You know, we hear about Guy Fawkes all the time and we hear a bit about Robert Catesby. But um, I'd, like, I'd like people to take away from the book the fact that there was this network of women whose, whose lives were influenced by the plot, who influenced it themselves, um, whose stories might have been written out of history a bit, but now we're bringing them back into the light. This book is quite recent. Um, are you already working on something new? Well, I'm actually working on a historical non-fiction book at the moment um, because I'm trying to decide which real-life historical mystery I'm going to tackle next in my fiction. So in the meantime, I'm um, writing, a, as I say, a, a non-fiction um, account of a um, 17th century house where, where I uh, worked for the National Trust. So uh, that's, that's my current project. But I feel sure that um, I'll settle on a real-life historical mystery soon. Having done the, the Princes in the Tower and um, various other high-profile mysteries like the Gunpowder Plot, I'm, not, I'm not, not sure which one I'm going to do next. But um, I, 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 I already want to get writing, so it won't be long before I do. 
Well, I hope the right one presents itself soon. And thank you so much for spending your time with us today, Nicola. I've enjoyed talking with you very much. Thank you. It's been great. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Nicola Cornick about the Winter Garden. Find out more about her at nicolacornick.co.uk. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at New Books Network. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews, and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.